as we continue to worship through our giving. Uh, grab your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in the reading of our text this morning. We'll be re- reading verses 1 through 12. Um, upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, please grab a Bible. Uh, it should be a white paperback one in the pew back in front of you. Open that up to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you today. Take it home, mark it up, write your name in it, fall in love with Jesus in the scriptures. When you get to Matthew chapter 5, look up at me and say, he is good. All right, follow along with me in scripture. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good? Good. Well, hopefully you have your Bible in front of you um, as we're continuing in our sermon series called Jesus Uncensored as we're looking at the most famous sermon ever preached. Um, Christians and even non-Christians alike agree that this is one of the most profound pieces of literature that we have coming from Jesus's mouth. And um, so we've been in this for a couple of weeks and this is going to take us all the way into Christmas as we just go verse by verse and line by line as to what Jesus has said. And just before we get going, just a few quick announcements. Um, This Wednesday night, for those of you that signed up for the connection class, um, our connection class is the process that takes you what we like to say from being a Sunday attender to a family member. And so we've had many of you sign up. That's going to begin this Wednesday at 6.30. Just a reminder for you, um, we will have child care provided for you as well. Um, If you couldn't make this round of connection classes, we sort of had to cap the class um, because we had a lot of people sign up, which is a really good problem to have to say that, hey, we had too many people who wanted to decide to join our church. And so we'll be doing that again in the spring. And so just be on the lookout for that. But that will happen um, this Wednesday at 6.30. And then also um, we share sort of in our backyard, um, O'Neill Elementary School, which is just right up the road, right up here. And um, we believe that we want to infiltrate any aspect that we can, and we want to do for one school what we wish we could do for every single school. And so O'Neill has approached us. They have a need, and um, one of the needs is this. Um, they have students and children that come, and sometimes their clothes are um, so worn that they're um, almost not appropriate for school. Or sometimes they have an accident at school, and they don't have any other clothes to change into. And so they're asking us to provide for them sweatshirts, sweatpants, underwear, and socks, um, both for boys and girls sizes um, 6 to 16. And so there's a box set up out front. There's a list for you as well. And what we're just asking you to do as a church is when you go grocery shopping or when you're shopping this week, or um, even if you have um, some nice sets of those at home, um, we're just asking for you to bring those. You can drop those off during the week um, because we believe for us 
us as a church, this is like basic stuff that we need to do as a church. Amen? I mean, these are just things that we can do and provide for kids and do that. This Thus is the kingdom of heaven when you provide things just as this. So we want to show up and show out for God's glory. So we just want to place that before you. So this week when you're buying groceries or when you're making your list, put that on the priority of your list. And so we're excited to be a part and to help uh, O'Neill Elementary with that. So, hey, we're in this series. We're in part two, really, of, of last week's message. And maybe just as a way of introduction, I've mentioned this series before, but it's 2017 and Netflix TV shows are all the rage, man, right? You know what I'm saying? And so I mentioned this TV show in the past called The Crown, um, which was passed on to us by some good friends, and we just fell in love with this TV show. Um, It's the most expensive TV show film to date, and it's about this lady who is the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, and she is still the Queen of England, which she is like the oldest ruling queen ever in the history. She like remembers when Moby Dick was a minnow. I mean, like this lady lady is old, man. You know what I'm saying? You'll use that this afternoon. You're good. You know what I mean? But this lady, and, and it shows her rise to the ascension, um, to being the queen. But the first couple of episodes involve her father, which was King George, and we have a picture of him. Um, king George was a beloved king of England, and it's even said that when he walked the streets, that the people wept because they loved their king so dearly. And if you know anything about history, King George died unexpectedly and suddenly, which thrusted Elizabeth to be the queen of England, which at the time there was literally nothing higher than that, to be the queen of England. But one of the cool things in the episode is she was so young, and she was so ill-prepared to literally be the queen of England and to hold such a high position that what she always did is she would always think and ask, how did my father handle this? What did my father do? And even when she had conversations with Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister, he would always advise her, how would your father rule and reign? And literally how she became such a good queen was she reflected her father's kingship and his rule and reign. And that's what we see in these next Beatitudes today. Um, we've, we've looked at the first four Beatitudes last week, and we said that the first four Beatitudes um, really declare how we um, uh, and, and our relationship deals with God, that the first four deal with God, and now these next ones deal with our relationships with people. And maybe just as a review, it's really important. We talked about this word blessed, which is where sort of in Latin we get the Beatitude from. But what we said is that this word blessed could be translated literally congratulations. You remember that? And it was so profound and just awesome to get so much feedback from people that Jesus is literally saying, congratulations for those who were on my team and they're the poor in spirit. And he gives all of these characteristics of the kingdom. But here's what's important for us to understand. These are not characteristics of how to be saved, but rather these reveal who are the saved who are in the kingdom of God. And so just as a review, we said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the people who admit that they're not good enough. Like literally one of the first characteristics of a Christian is someone who goes, listen, man, I shouldn't even be a Christian. You know what I mean? Like that's literally the first characteristic. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. And we said, these are people who accept the responsibility of their sin." That they recognize that they have a problem, but the problem is far and above just outside of them. They recognize that they themselves are the problem and that they need help. 
Which leads to this, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we said that these are people who acknowledge that grace is greater than sin. Amen? Oh, you're the 11 o'clock. You better speak back to me, all right, right? We said that grace is greater than sin. Amen? Amen. And we said because of that grace, this grace has literally tamed us. That we have become meek people, humble people because of God's grace. And then the last thing was, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we said that these are people who ache for God's righteousness. That they know that they shouldn't be on the team. But God's grace, listen, don't miss this, God's grace motivates their obedience. So when God says, this is how me being a good creator, this is how my creation works, we know what the brokenness of our sin has caused. So when we see his grace, we go, oh, yes, and we hunger and we thirst for more of that. And today, just as Queen Elizabeth, we want to reflect our Heavenly Father. So, so listen, here's the big idea today. Kingdom citizens reflect the king. I mean, I mean, that's just cookies on the bottom shelf. Kingdom citizens reflect the king. These next beatitudes hinge on the previous beatitudes. Because God has done this in our lives, now this is what our lives look like. This is how we deal with the world and the relationship and the people around us. And here's what's so awesome. Jesus offends everybody. So welcome to Westside. You ready to get into it? Here we go, all right? The first thing that we see is this. We show mercy because God has shown us mercy. Do you see that there? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, it's important for us to understand and distinguish between mercy and grace. Um, Oftentimes, people sort of lump them together, but they are distinct. And we always like to say here that grace is an unearned gift from an unobligated giver. That's why it's grace. You didn't earn it, and you didn't deserve it, and the person that gave it to you was not obligated to give it to you. Hence, why we preach here the gospel. Good news, right? Amen? That God has given us grace in Jesus Christ. We did not deserve it, and he was not obligated. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So then what is mercy? I like to define it like this. Mercy is grace in motion. Mercy is grace in motion. And you say, Jason, what what do you mean by that? Well, mercy is not just like this ethereal concept. It's not just something that we say and something that sits out there. But behind it, mercy promotes action. That there's a physicality to mercy, if you will. And I know what some of you are saying. Well, you better have a Bible verse to back that up. I do. I'm glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. But God, being rich in mercy. Man, that's good news, isn't it? God didn't have just a little bit of mercy. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. I got to stop and I got to preach about that because that's just too good to just not go by, right? Literally what it's saying is God was so rich in mercy because of the love that he had for us when? Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Do you know what that means for you? 
That means that while you were an active enemy and hostile to God, as Colossians chapter 1 would say, that God had already set his love on you. Listen, without your permission, bro. He just did it out of his own goodness and out of his own kindness. Now, that doesn't mean, that means that you don't get your life together, that you don't say, I'm going to really get involved when I get all this lined out, when I'm going to do all of this. What is so outlandish about Christianity, listen, is not just that you get forgiven of your sins, but you get rewarded. That's how crazy Christianity is. And it says that even while we were dead in our trespasses, now here it is, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, there's mercy in there and there's grace. But the mercy that I see is that he made us alive together with Christ. That mercy promotes action. That there's something that's done. Mercy is grace in motion. Maybe this illustration will help. There's a story told of the emperor, the French emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. Remember that guy? When you would fall asleep in high school class, when you'd learn about him and stuff? This guy was a ruthless dude. And he was the French emperor. And the story is told that there was a young man there in the village who had committed a third crime. And Napoleon was to put him to death. But history records that his mother, right? Shout out to all the mamas. You know what I mean, right? That his mother went to his defense and literally threw herself at the emperor. And the emperor told the mother, this is his third transgression which demands justice. And history records that this mother said this, but I do not ask for justice, dear emperor. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon said. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is what I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will grant mercy. Do you see the difference? There's an action there. And I love that illustration because it's a great illustration of the gospel. That we were guilty and that we were on trial. But Jesus thrusts himself in front of us. Absorbs the wrath of God there up on the cross and grants mercy. There is an action to that. So here's what this means. That Christians have a fundamental action and grant mercy in their life. Listen, to people who don't deserve the mercy. So what does that mean? That means when somebody deserves to get everything that they've done to you blasted on social media, you don't blast it on social media. Is that that too close to home? Is I not supposed to say that, right? That means when somebody deserves everything that they have coming for them, that they don't get what they have coming to them, but rather you grant them grace and mercy, that grace in motion. And this is so fundamental in the New Testament that Jesus' half-brother James says these words, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He's speaking to Christians here. He says, listen, you need to speak and act as those who are getting judged under the law of liberty, the law of grace, and that is good news for us today. And then he says these words, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what James is saying. The true test to show if you have received mercy is if you give mercy. 
Now, 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 don't do the American Western thing, which is this. So if I show mercy, then I get mercy. No, 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 no. That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is when you show mercy, it is the true test of time that you have received mercy from God. That we show mercy because God has shown us mercy. So what does this look like? It looks like this week when you're buying groceries that you also buy sweatshirts and sweatpants for little boys and girls that can't afford them. What does it look like? It looks like when you're standing in line at Walmart and you see that person who has food stamps and WIC checks and all of these things and it gets you so angry because you work 47 hours this week, seven hours overtime and the boss isn't going to pay you that and you demand and you have all of this but yet you pay for their groceries. It means loving little babies and adopting them. It means being in the foster care system and fostering little children. This is what Christians do. Look at the history. Charles Darwin never started a hospital, bro. Christians did. Orphanages, you can always trace this back. Why was Rome so profound at the Christian religion? Because they took better care of Roman citizens than Rome did. We show mercy. We are merciful people because we are reflecting what our Heavenly Father has already done to us. We show mercy because God has shown us mercy. The second thing is this. We strive for purity because God has made us pure. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mean, that's profound. I mean, mean, can we just be honest and look at that verse and go, that's unbelievable. First off, it's talking about people being pure in heart and then talking about people seeing God. Now, what did Jesus not say? Jesus did not say, blessed are the perfect in heart, for they will see God. Do you know what the word pure means? It means oneness. It means undefiled. It means not two, but one. That's why when you have pure drinking water, there's no additives to it. It is pure. It is one. And what Jesus is saying is, blessed are the pure in heart, a heart that is devoted solely unto God. And this has always been a question, even through the Old Testament. David asks this question in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But who is someone who has a pure heart? Here he answers it. Who does not lift his soul to what is false. Another translation would say this. Who does not lift his soul to idols. Oh, what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting outward appearance with inward reality. He's saying it has nothing to do with external. It has everything to do with internal. And it's not about this idea of perfection because Jesus was perfect for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus was perfect for us. But in turn, we strive for the purity. It's what theologians call the already and the not yet. Because Jesus has come and he's paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Correct? Amen. Oh, but we still stumble. And there will be a day that when those clouds split and we hear that trumpet and he takes us home to glory and we will be freed from the presence of sin, from the penalty of sin, and from the power of sin. And there we will be perfect. But here we still strive for that purity because he's already granted that to us. 
See, 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 listen, pure in heart means progression, not perfection. But here, I, I need to speak to two people here. First, I need to speak to those of you who grew up um, in, in sort of the fundamentalist movement, right? Right with the King James Schofield Reference Bible, 1611. We're putting the fun and fundamentalism, brother. Amen, right? You know what I'm saying? And what you guys thought was, if I read my Bible more, if I don't drink, cuss, chew, or go with girls that do, then God will let me in heaven. Or rated our movies, unless it's Passion of the Christ, then it's okay. You know what I mean, right? If I don't do any of that stuff, then oh, is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it has nothing to do with that. You're, that's works-based righteousness. You're not pure in heart because you're holding this up. And so listen to you, I declare good news over your life. That listen, you failed. It's the whole point of the cross. But the good news is that you were accepted. It's the whole point of the cross. So now we labor because God has already made us pure. That's the first group. The second group that I am um, sort of stay awake at night about is those of you who think that you do not need to strive for purity because grace abounds. So now I can go on this bingeness and understand that I don't really want to pursue Jesus, that I don't really want to pursue this lifestyle. And yeah, it's just a season in my life right now. Listen, I'm weary for your soul. When you think that you can pursue sin, you know what the Apostle Paul says? We do not sin so grace may abound. By no means, because what grace does is now give us the power to not sin anymore. So for those of you in your life who are living and pursuing this stagnation of sin and you're not gathering people around saying, help me in this pursuit of purity. You're not living in community. You're not loving God's word. You're not seceding to the Holy Spirit whenever there's conviction. Listen, I'm weary for you and so is Christ because time will tell that you love that sin more than you love Christ. Listen, we move forward, but we're not marching forward in perfection. As one preacher says we move forward but we stumble forward but listen we're still moving forward so I have to ask you this question and and, and it's what we used to always judge the aspect of our heart do you love the things that you once hated and hate the things that you once loved here's what I mean by this before Christ we didn't want accountability get up out my kool-aid man you don't need what's going on in my life right I didn't love truth. I didn't want to sit down at a table with my friends and them say, if you continue in this lifestyle, it's going to ruin your life. I would tell them, yeah, I'll meet you at coffee 9 a.m. and not show up. You know why? Because I didn't like that stuff. And I loved my sin, and I loved being the boss of my own life. But what Christ does is he comes and he changes our affections. So now the things that I once hated, I loved. I need people in my life to tell me I'm two steps away from stupid. Hey, man, if you keep going down that path, that path is a dead end. I love truth because truth tells me where I need to go in my life. And, oh, how the creator says his creation works. Please tell me. Please, how do I be a disciple? How do I walk in this? So listen, I don't want you to hear that we strive for purity because God has made us pure. I don't want to give you something, a to-do list. I want you to rest in his grace. And then because of that, we pursue holiness in our life. Blessed are the pure in heart. And now look at this promise. I'm about to burst. I did this to the first service and yelled at him, so you're going to get it too. Look at what he says. Blessed are the pure in heart for what? What's the promise? 
They shall see God. A non-Christian philosopher said that Jesus said that because that could be considered the apex of humanity, the greatest thing that a human could ever do. Because every worldview wants to know how it all works. How does the universe work? Is there a big guy behind that curtain? I want to see him, right? I want to know how all this stuff works. I want, that's the apex. Literally the greatest thing that somebody could ever do is see God. But there's this great mystery and tension all through Scripture. Like in John's gospel, he says, no one's seen God and no one will ever see God. And then in 1 Timothy, it says that God dwells in inapproachable light. But then Jesus, as Jewish rabbi, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? It's just mind-blowing, right? It's incredible. I don't know if you were like me, but this past Monday, did, did, did anybody see the eclipse? Raise your hand. Did anybody see the eclipse? Put on those goofy glasses, take a selfie and all that kind of good stuff, right? I saw all these pictures posted on Facebook and stuff about the eclipse. But do you know who won and posted the coolest pictures? NASA. They win, man, right? They posted some of the coolest pictures. This is one picture. That dark spot up there in the top is the shadow that the moon casts over that area. Like they took a picture. Look how big that shadow is when the moon went right in front of the sun. We were up in Farmington and got to see totality. The streetlights clicked on and the crickets started chirping. It was like weird. It was eerie, man. It was incredible. And then this next picture, and on a high def, it looks incredible, this next photo, right before totality. And you can see literally how light is shining out of the corner, but where that totality's happened, it's complete darkness. And it was incredible to stand there and to see it. And I broke the rules, and when totality happened, I took off my glasses and burned my retinas to death. But I loved watching that. And listen, when I sat there and I watched that and I took off those glasses, all that echoed in my mind was Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above his handiwork. And listen, for those few moments, God was shouting at humanity. And he was saying, look at how beautiful this is. I have made this. Listen. Nobody felt prideful when they watched the eclipse. Nobody looked at the eclipse and went, yeah, it's cool, but I'm pretty awesome, bro. Nobody said that. Why? Because in that moment, you realized how little you were and how little your life really matters. Now, listen to me. Listen, follow this train of thought. If that was beautiful, if the eclipse and the totality blew your mind, then Christians will get to see the God that made it. How beautiful is the eclipse? How beautiful is my God that made the eclipse? And listen, I don't care what you're going through, and I don't care how hard it is right now. This is a true promise. We fight our sin. We don't play with sin. We drag it out in the road. We put two in the head, and we go back to worshiping Christ. Because whatever barriers and whatever things that I have to do in my life to continue pursuing purity will be worth it because in the end, I'll see God. And I stand upon the authority of God's word with that. Listen to me, that is far more satisfying than sleeping with your boyfriend. That is far more satisfying than the addiction that you put in your veins. And that is far more satisfying than being your own God. Because we will stand in awe of the God that made the eclipse. This is the promise when we put these things in our life. The next promise is this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We make peace because God has made peace with us. We make peace because God has made peace with us. Notice, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Oh, there's a profound difference. 
See, many of you think, and, and, and a lot of people think, that Christianity is like a pushover religion, sort of like we're kind of like a doormat. And so peacemaking is peacekeeping. But here's what peacekeeping is. There's this thing in my life, and there's this thing in my friend's life. And if I sit down and we talk about this, and it's probably going to change our friendship, they're probably going to get mad at me, they're probably not going to like my Facebook post, and that's going to freak me out. And I'm going to have less followers on Twitter and Instagram. I'm going to have to block them, and it's just going to get crazy. And so rather than talk to my mother-in-law about this thing, oh, I mean, you know, rather than do that, I'm just going to keep the peace. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to do it. No, 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 listen. That's called passivity. That's called fear, and that's called cowardice. Peacekeeping is cowardice. It requires no action. Peacemaking and being a peacemaker is an action. Because, listen, just follow the logic. If you're a peacemaker, you're going places where there is no peace. Oh, okay, see? And how do we know this? We reflect what God has done in us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 says these words. And through him, Jesus... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, there's our phrase, it's the exact Greek word that Jesus uses right here in Colossians, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's a peculiar verse. There's two things that I see. First off, that God chose to reconcile humanity to himself. Christians are in the business of reconciliation, not retaliation. And you can draw those implications out in your life however you please. But God did not look down and say, give them what they deserve. They did this, so therefore I will do this and retaliate. Listen, a surefire way to ruin your marriage is to give them what they deserve, buddy. And a surefire way to get your kids to run away from the church and for you to be a dictator in your home is to lay it on them every time that they deserve it because, by God, it's good for them. And then you're going to be in my office in 15 years going, Brother Jason, we just don't know why they don't come to church no more. I love my kids, but they don't come to church no more. Yeah, bro, because it was like living in Kim Jong-un's house with you, man. Goodness gracious. It was like lashes all day. It was all retaliation. We're not in that business. We're in reconciliation. What did Jesus do upon the cross? He absorbed the blow. I love to make it easier for you when it comes to this issue of unforgiveness because what you want to do is retaliate and pay that person back. Charles Spurgeon said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and wishing the other person to be ill. It's only going to affect you. Retaliation never wins, but reconciliation does. And how do we do this? Look at this. He says, making peace. Now look, by the blood of the cross. I don't know about you, but when I think about peace, the next thought is not always blood in my mind. You know what I mean? But when you think about it, like watching the fights and stuff last night, rest in peace, Conor McGregor, I still love him, I hate Floyd Mayweather, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. But like when you watch the fights or if you watch a referee or anything like that, what does the referee have to do to break these guys apart? He throws himself in the middle of them. You got to get in where there is war. You have to enter into war and you make that peace. So that tells me this, that peacemaking is a bloody process and that you got to have that conversation and you got to go those places. And listen, you throw yourself in where there is no peace. But Jesus says, this is the trademark because you reflect it because then you are sons and daughters of God. We make peace because God has made peace with us. Listen, how in the world could we claim the name of Christ, Jesus? Listen, we worship a man who was murdered. 
Have you ever thought about that? We worship a guy that was murdered who was being nailed to a cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then you turn around in the same breath and retaliate and spew venom upon someone. It's not about retaliation. It's about reconciliation. We don't keep peace. We make peace. And we have to go places where there's war. And it's a bloody process. And then which leads to this. What does our life look like? Well, the last thing is this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Joel Osteen's never read that verse a day in his life. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The last thing is this. We will be persecuted because Jesus was persecuted. Isn't it great how Jesus caps it off? Like, listen, if you go out and and you show mercy because God's shown you mercy, if you strive for purity because God's made you pure, if you go out and make peace because God's made uh, made peace with you, the world is going to hate your guts. Thus is the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's important to note, look at verse 11. Look at your Bible. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on whose account? Mine, Jesus' account. So that tells me this. If you're an idiot Christian on Facebook blasting all kinds of stuff with picket signs and saying, you know, Britney Spears doesn't love Jesus and all this kind of stuff and doing all kinds of things like that, and you say that you're persecuted because people don't like you, no, bro, you're just mean, okay? You're just a mean person. Listen, the gospel's offensive enough as it is, so we don't need to be. You understand that? And, and, and I don't even think we know anything when it comes to persecution. Like, none of your lives are at stake for leaving this place today. Your door's not going to get kicked in and then rummage through your house to see if you have a Bible. None of that's going to happen. But now listen, what should be happening in your life is that there should be people who are not okay with you because you love Christ. Listen to me. Don't miss this. The most insulting thing that a non-Christian could say to a Christian that a Christian should be devastated at is this. Your life is no different than mine. That should bring us to our knees. What Jesus is saying is, listen, when you worship me and you live this kingdom life, and you use your money this way, and you use your time this way, and you show grace this way, and you show mercy this way, the world will hate it. And there should be a difference in your life. So I have to ask you this question. Is there a difference in your life because you love Jesus, because of the relationships around you? There should be. I'm not saying we go looking for that. I'm just saying that that is simply a result because this will happen to us. This is the telltale sign of if you're following Christ or not is if there are people who are hostile towards you because you love Christ on his account, not on your account, but upon his account. This is how Jesus ends this. (laughs) That's why I love Jesus. Who would end their, their sermon this way right here? Like, congratulations, all those people are in my kingdom. And the trademark of being in my kingdom is that, by God, it's going to be tough for you, and you're going to have a bloody nose, and people are going to hate you to death. Come on in, right? And when we speak of persecution, we look back upon church history, and it's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That Christianity thrives off poverty and persecution. 
It's so, like, like, think about it. And look at what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you when others revile you. But verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like, what do you expect? Read the Bible. The world hates this type of stuff. And I know nobody who encompassed this better than like the apostle Paul, right? Like, this guy's insane. Think about it. They go to Paul, and they're like, listen, you cannot preach Jesus. You cannot preach Jesus. Paul's like, I got to preach Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, my Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then they put him in jail, and he's like, oh, I'm fine being in jail because I'm going to sing hymns, and I'm going to convert all the jailers, and everybody's going to get saved. And then an angel's going to come and release me, and it's going to be incredible, right? And then they're like, okay, we're not going to put you in prison. We're going to cut your head off. And he's like, you know what? To live is Christ, but to die is gain. And just like, what do you do with a guy like that? How do you threaten a guy like that? Because his reward was in heaven. There's nothing that you can do to me. As Romans chapter 8 says, the sufferings that I go through in this present time are nothing in compared to the weight of the future glory that God has in store for me. That anything that you do to me, because my life and my home is not on this earth, But a telltale sign is the reason why we get scared and waver on that is because we're protecting our 401k, right? This retirement, I don't know, we're in a recession, brother. You know about that? And your reward is here upon earth, which is why when something comes along, conflict or suffering, that idol gets wrong and you get defensive because, listen, we will defend what we love. That's why you see all through history, Christians, as Romans chapter 13 says, that we are like sheep, led to the slaughter. Why? Because what can you do? You can't take my Christ away. You can't take my future glory away from me, man. Cancer doesn't win. Persecution doesn't win. Jesus wins in the end. And when we look back upon church history, one man that stands out about this idea of persecution is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who lived through World War II and wrote and embodied this idea of the Sermon on the Mount almost more than anyone that I know, and wrote in a German concentration camp. And on April 8th, 1945, he was hung in Flossenburg only three days before U.S. troops liberated that concentration camp. And history records that when they uh, read his name to, to go to the gallows, that he turned to his fellow prisoner and said, they think that this is the end of my life, but dear friend, this is only the beginning. And he marched and he stood against the racist, demonic Nazi regime. And he put his head in that noose because he knew to live as Christ and to die as gain. And what he said about the end, where do we find our home? Where do these people who embody, who reflect the heavenly king, where do these people find their home? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, here at the end of the Beatitudes... The question arises as to where in this world such a faith community actually finds a place. And they find a place at the cross. The faith community of the blessed is the community of the crucified. With him, they lost everything. And with him, they found everything. You see, kingdom citizens reflect the king. And I just have to end with this as the band comes up and leads us in a time of response. Who are you reflecting? Like, is your life intrinsically different than non-Christians? Do you live differently? And just as Queen Elizabeth, when she was dealt with the confrontation, would bow her head and say, what would my father, King George, have done? We, 
as kingdom citizens, bow our head and we know what our heavenly king has done and we reflect that. So here's how I want to end today. Inside your bulletin, you have the Beatitudes. And I want you to stand right where you're at. Everyone's standing with that list in your hand. And we're going to do a responsive reading. I want us to read these Beatitudes out loud. And listen, I want you to read them loudly and read them clearly. Because listen, this is the kingdom of heaven. These are the blessed congratulations that Jesus offers unto us. And that when we say these words, that literally it is the kingdom of heaven here on earth. You'll read the bold and underlined part. So let us begin. The Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And God, we pray what you taught us to pray, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know the kingdom characteristics. We know what you've done for us. And may we leave this place, oh God, what would homes look like today? What would a marriage look like today? What would parenting look like today? What would Popper Bluff, Missouri look like today? That if we left this place and we reflected our heavenly king because we are heavenly citizens. And here in Popper Bluff, just as it is in heaven, we would see the very kingdom of God. God, I believe that's what would change the world and definitely change lives. As we come to the table, we see our blessed Savior. He was broken for us. And we see the entrance to this. Convict us that need convicting. God, may we pursue this purity. May we understand the mercy that you've offered us. We don't keep the peace, but we make it. May us march forward with grace and truth in our mouth. And may we be comforted and hear the resounding Congratulations and blessed are those, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this in the mighty and in the precious and the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Come forward and partake in communion.